Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hello and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Laura Kerr, Speech Pathology Australia's Senior Advisor, Mental Health and Trauma. There are many factors that can influence how well an individual engages in therapy sessions and how much progress they make. And today we're going to talk about an area that is often overlooked by speech pathologists, but is essential to consider when undertaking assessment and planning intervention. I'd like to welcome Anna Kearns and Lauren Hamill, whose presentation I was privileged to watch at the Speech Pathology Australia conference a few months ago. Anna and Lauren have been speech pathologists for almost 20 years, and between them have extensive paediatric community health experience. They are here today to talk about how their experiences working with families facing disadvantage has prompted them to think more about what speech pathologists can do when working with families who are doing it tough. So welcome, Anna and Lauren. Thanks, Laura. Let's just start. Um, I'd like um, to hear about your current roles and how you came into them. Sure. So I'll jump in first. It's Lauren here. And firstly, Laura, thanks so much for having us today on the Speak Up podcast. Um, we really love listening to this podcast and it's a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, as you mentioned, both Anna and I work at Sydney Children's Hospital Randwick. And as Sydney Children's Hospital staff members, we work on the land of the Gadigal and Bidjigal people, the first people to live and learn in this area. We'd like to pay our respects to Elders past and present, and also extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening to this podcast. In terms of my role, I'm a speech pathologist at Sydney Children's Hospital, and for the past 15 years, my speech pathology work has been with Aboriginal communities in southeastern Sydney. I work with a service that has developed slowly over time, a service co-developed by Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people from health, education and the community, where the unique strengths, values and resilience of Aboriginal families, communities and culture are incorporated into routine clinical practice. The model of care was actually published in Speech Pathology Australia's Journal of Clinical Practice in Speech Language Pathology earlier this year. So please check it out if you want some more information. Um, but my role within the service is to partner with Aboriginal children and their families to help children reach their communication potential. Thanks, Lauren. Hi, everyone. I'm Anna Kearns. I'm also a paediatric speech pathologist here at Sydney Children's Hospital Randwick and have been working here with Lauren and the team for the past eight years. Prior to that, I've been um, working in Sydney and Hong Kong in early intervention services, um, but most of the time um, 
here at Sydney Kids, I've been working in community health and a large part and my favourite part of that role has been partnering with local community organisations who run supported playgroups for families. I've recently moved to a new role at Sydney Children's Hospital working on a project called PEACH, which is an acronym standing for Providing Enhanced Access to Health Services. PEACH aims to address equity through improving access and care provision for children and young people from priority populations. So it's a great opportunity for me to get to use my clinical skills to think about equity at the individual community and the health system level for families. Mm, thank, thank you. It's such an interesting perspective that you two bring to, um, to speech pathology and to our, our podcast today. And it's, it's really lovely um, to hear about the work that you're doing. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about the clients um, with whom you work? Yeah, sure. So I might um, jump in first again. Um, so I predominantly work with Aboriginal preschool and early school age children and their families. So the children of families I work with are resilient and resourceful, um, but many families are having to constantly deal with the impact of colonisation and a lack of intergenerational wealth. So I've seen firsthand the effect that poverty can have on children. Um, I really like thinking about the Parenting Research Centre's Reframing Parenting Framework, um, which talks about supporting child development by supporting parents. And their research shows that words really matter, which we know as speech pathologists. Um, and this means that we begin our conversations and communication with what children need to develop well, rather than what parents and carers need to do. Um, this framework uses a navigation metaphor um, to help explain that the external environment shapes parenting and caring, and we feel that this really resonates well with families. So the metaphor is that parenting is like navigating a ship, um, and if you have lighthouses and safe harbours, you can navigate rocky waters and storms, um, but if you don't have these lighthouses and safe harbours, then getting through these storms can be really challenging. So as speech pathologists and working with children and um, Aboriginal families, um, we often think about the skills that parents and children need. And this is obviously essential, but the reframing parenting framework tells us that success occurs when parents and carers have skills and support. So over the past few years, our team have put more thought into what supports can be put in place for families. And we've worked out that if we give parents and carers what they need, then children can get what they need. Um, people can only do as well as their situation allows. And we know that children thrive when parents and carers are supported. Mm. Thanks, Lauren. I'd also like to echo um, the words that Lauren has said, um, that the families that we work with really are the people that know their children best and they're the key and primary people working um, together with us and in their children's lives. And the issue that Lauren has described are not issues that are isolated to Aboriginal families. I work in community health and we see families from our local area from very diverse backgrounds with children who present with all manner of speech, language and communication needs. And even though Sydney Children's Hospital is located in Southeast Sydney, where there are certainly pockets of advantage, we also know that there are pockets of disadvantage. All the families that we work with want the best for their children, um, but we often see that parents and caregivers, as Lauren mentioned, can really only do as well as their situation and circumstances allow. And when we think about working in paediatrics, 
we work with children, but really we are working with their parents and carers. We cannot work with those children in isolation. And this really means having a good understanding about the family and the circumstances within which they are living. And as speech pathologists, again, we know the importance of carer and child interactions. And when families are doing it tough, it can be really, really difficult for them to be spending quality time engaging and interacting with their children. Um, there's recent data, the early um, Australian Early Development Census data um, that has just been released in 2021 that sadly shows that the gap between children in the most disadvantaged and least disadvantaged locations has widened and now is the largest gap since 2012. And we feel, Lauren and I, and hopefully everybody listening today, that we all have a role in addressing this gap. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Anna and Lauren. <clears throat> it's really fascinating to hear. So how do we understand poverty and how common is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, Australia is often referred to as the lucky country, and it is for many, but um, not everyone gets the same chance at a good start in life. So in terms of prevalence, we know that one in six children in Australia are living below the poverty line. And these numbers are even higher in areas of disadvantage in Australia. I think we can all resonate with what's currently happening in Australia and in the cost of living in increasing significantly. So petrol prices, grocery bills and inflation rates are all having a huge impact on people's ability to meet their needs. Um, but poverty is so much more than not having enough money. It also means that there are unmet basic needs, such as access to safe and affordable housing, healthy food, education, employment, and healthcare. Um, poverty affects an individual's cognitive bandwidth or mental resources and generates an intense focus on the present to the detriment of the future. So when parents and carers of children with speech, language, and communication needs need to direct their mental resources towards dealing with unmet basic needs, they have less attention to focus on other important tasks like supporting their child's communication development. Um, for us, on a practical level, this can mean that when parents and carers are struggling to pay their rent, they might have to cancel their child's speech pathology assessment at the last minute if they're offered a casual shift at work. Or it might mean if there's no money to buy food, then there's no money to pay for the bus to go to a therapy session. It can mean that if a family doesn't have a stable home, there's no way home practice can occur. So um, as we've both said before, people can only do as well as their situation allows. And we've worked out over time, it's taken some time, but we've worked out that we can't do our job, which is to partner with families to help children reach their communication potential if families are living with unmet basic needs. Mm -hmm. So true, it makes me think of sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs Definitely. as well. You know, you just need that, um, that basic safety at the bottom. Um, before you can engage in those high level tasks. And I, and I forgot to mention before, I really love that lighthouse analogy mm. as well. I thought that was really beautiful. And uh, is there anything you'd like to add um, to what uh, Lauren's just talked about? No, I think it's really been key to our conversations as we've really got to this point over the years. We've spent years trying to think about how you know we can do our jobs best when we know families are struggling and if we're only thinking about our the kids that we're working with and their communication needs and really not thinking about the family as a bigger unit and more holistically then we're missing a huge part of what's going on in the picture for those families. Mm -hmm, absolutely. 
So can you just talk a bit more about some of the basic unmet needs that we might see in families facing disadvantage? Yeah, I might jump in here. Um, I think as Lauren has outlined some of what some of those basic unmet needs are, um, but as we were thinking about this work, we were looking initially for um, existing tools that were able to screen or identify families with unmet social needs or basic needs in a paediatric setting. Um, so we had to have some systematic way of asking families these questions without um, a set framework. We didn't feel comfortable at all doing that. Um, much of the research in this area has really focused on the adult population, but there are a few tools specific to paediatrics and the SIREN um, website, SIREN is an acronym that stands for Social Interventions Research and Evaluation Network. It's through um, the University of California in San Francisco. It's a fantastic website and resource that has a list of all the social needs screening tools for both adult and paediatric populations. So um, the tools ask a range of different questions related to social needs or basic needs, and they range from um, six questions up to 15 questions. And after some research, we ended up using an adapted version of the We Care tool by GARG. This asks about six unmet needs. And the unmet needs that we looked at and used for this tool were housing stability, food security, household bills, childcare, employment, and parent and carer education. So this tool and these questions were chosen for a few different reasons, but the really important factor was having a, a local community partner organisation that we could refer families to if they identified that they needed assistance with these unmet needs. So we know that there are many other unmet needs, but we did not feel comfortable asking about those because we didn't have a system in place to actually address them. And we know the ethical implications of screening without having um, some kind of um, way of addressing those needs. So. Um, on reflection, we've thought perhaps we could have asked about things like transport um, and adjusted the way that we saw families because we knew that our community partner couldn't help with transport, but perhaps we would have been able to do some more outreach services or piggyback appointments on with other health um, appointments to really think about things like that or telehealth, amazing. So there's many different tools, lots of different unmet needs, but the um, we care tool by GARG was the adapted tool that we ended up um, using to ask about those unmet needs. Mm -hmm. Lauren, is there anything you wanted to add, add to that? Yeah, I no? guess just on a practical level, if I arrive at a school or a childcare centre and I'm there to meet with a family and a, a little one, um, the things, the basic unmet needs that we might see are that the child may not have had a good breakfast because there was inadequate food um, in the house. It might mean that um, they had less sleep than they um, would ideally have because they live in a suburb or in housing that is less than adequate. Um, it might mean that um, their clothing, they don't have the right clothes to come to school and or the right um, you know, access to opportunities for um, extracurricular activities. So 
these are kind of unmet basic needs that if we're in there just thinking about, okay, what is their um, speech sound system like or what language, you know, um, difficulties are they presenting with and ignore the other things. Um, yeah, I guess we're missing a big part, as Anna said, of the picture. Mm, and even as um, children get older or even when they're younger, uh, I guess thinking about the impact on their social you know, their, their ability to form friendships and the, the social implications as well. You know, if they, as you said, if they can't wear the right clothes or, you know, um, yeah, the, I think they're really important things for, for speeches to hold in mind. Mm. Yeah, we often say that if children are able to eat well and sleep well and present mm. well, then they've got a better chance of being able to develop well and um, integrate well into society and make relationships and, um you know, really get on well at school, do well at school, um, graduate and get a job, keep a job, stay out of prison. So it's really basic things, but it can have really profound impacts. Mm, absolutely. And we do talk about it um, later, but uh, Anna, I really um, liked hearing you talk about how you decided which questions to ask and what informed your decision-making around that. Because I think when it comes to asking about these things um, a lot of us can feel quite nervous because they can be quite personal quite confronting and um, you know it's one thing to, to ask the question and to figure out how to ask it but then what do you do with the answers that you get and so having those um, those sort of safe holds in place you know thinking about the ethical um, implications and you know what are the what are the issues you can address or, or that you can respond to confidently so yeah as I mentioned I, I think we talk a bit about that later uh, but thank you for bringing that up because uh, I imagine it's something that a lot of speeches would would struggle to figure out and to sit with yeah Okay, so um, we've talked about um, sort of the basic unmet needs that we might see um, in our families. Uh, what are some of the consequences of these basic needs not being met, particularly for those with speech, language and communication needs? And what can this mean for speech pathologists working with families who are struggling to have their basic needs met? Yeah, I think this is exactly how we really started to think about this work. Repeatedly, we were working with families who were experiencing difficulty attending appointments, or if they were able to attend, we were noticing that it was challenging for them to complete any home practice and therefore see any progress in the child's communication needs. Um, I think as a team, we found we were spending more time problem solving ways to work with families to help them. And more of our clinical time was spent on this sort of more case management um, for families who are experiencing social vulnerabilities. Um, but we really had no systematic way of understanding or addressing these challenges. So this really helped us to think differently about how we were working with children and families. And by understanding more about their social needs, really trying to put things in place for families first and foremost, so that then we were able to um, bring the children in at a time that they were ready and the families were ready to be able to participate in therapy. We know how much involvement we rely on families, parents, caregivers to really be invested in their child's speech therapy. Um, and so we really wanted to have a systematic process in place so that we could really help um, 
try and get these little ones ready for therapy as best we could. Is there anything you wanted to add um, to that? Yeah, maybe also on a practical level, I guess, um, and an example of a family that I saw, um, I was referred a little boy who um, is in kindy or was in kindergarten at the time, and he hadn't accessed any early childhood supports. Um, he was often not at school, and he had communication, um, expressive and receptive communication difficulties, which meant that um, he was not able to communicate well with his peers, make relationships, understand classroom work. Um, and the interactions I had with mum were really um, limited and few and far between. So I attempted to see him, but made little progress and he continued to not be at school. And um, that was really difficult. I had no idea what was going on for them at home. Um, we then started talking and introducing a systematic routine way to ask about unmet basic needs. And I ran into mum in the playground and I was able to, you know, say we're doing this kind of work now. Um, I'd really be really keen to chat with you about that if you're comfortable with that. And she said, okay, that sounds good. Um, I left at that at that time because I felt that um, it wasn't the right environment in the middle of a busy playground to be talking about these things. But funnily enough, later on, she sent me a text message and she said, oh, um, that thing you were talking about about can you give me a call and we can have a chat and so I then contacted her and asked the questions based on the GARG or the adapted GARG tool and there were four out of six unmet needs um, that she identified for herself and the family so they were struggling with housing there was not often not enough food by the end of, by the, end of the week um, she her little one, um, she wasn't able to get um, childcare for him. And that meant that she couldn't get a job in order to um, pay the rent. So just this vicious cycle. Um, through the onward referral pathway, we're able to put her in touch with um, Family Connect and Support, who were our onward, ref onward referral pathway. And um, uh, it's not a miracle, but it's just common sense that when some of these things were able to be addressed, um, this little boy started turning up at school more often. He had food in his lunchbox. He, the school were aware of things that were happening so could provide uniforms for the family um, free of charge. So yeah, by no one else was asking these questions and the school had lots of options like breakfast club available. They had food hampers that they could give to families, but they need to know who needed assistance. Um, and so it was actually um, a really nice way to, um, yeah, to work with this family and see that what a difference can make. Um, a few years later, uh, I then saw the younger sibling who um, at the point of kindy intake had actually been able to access early childhood supports was in a much better place. And although he too had um, language concerns, um, he wasn't having to deal with and his family weren't having to deal with so many other things. So um, his mum really had the cognitive bandwidth or the mental resources to be able to engage with um, school and with me and with his learning to help him achieve his potential. Mm, that really touches and warms my heart, Lauren. Um, yeah, it's just incredible, isn't it? Just those small little actions, what difference they can make. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, okay, so um, tell us about the social, social determinants of health movement and how speech pathologists play a role. Firstly, 
I guess, just to define the social determinants of health. So the definition I like the most comes from Professor Sir Michael Marmot, and he wrote a report for the World Health Organization back in 2012. And that report was titled Fair Society, Healthy Lives, the Marmot's Review. Um, he then followed up with another report in 2020 called the Marmot Review 10 Years On. And basically he describes the social determinants of health as the conditions in which people are born, grow, live, work and age. So as we've mentioned before, this means having access to safe and affordable housing, healthy food, education, employment and healthcare, just to name a few. But the social determinants of health aren't um, negative or positive. You can either have assets or you can have risks. And so it's thinking, you know, for myself, um, I have housing, stable housing. I have access to um, food, quality, um, healthy food. Um, but, and so that's an asset for me, but other families might be something different. Um, we know that adverse or risks for social terms of health can lead to child health inequities. So these are differences in children's health, development and well-being that are unjust, unnecessary, systematic and preventable. So that little boy that I was talking about, um, just because of the conditions in which he was born um, and that he was growing up in, um, he had really unjust, unnecessary and unfair um I guess um parameters Starting placed life. around yeah exactly yeah yep and he had less um chance to be able to develop and um grow and um for things to turn out in a really positive way so for us the social terms of health movement is about recognizing that everyone has a role to play in tackling inequities and we're really glad that speech pathology australia recognized this need uh, for all speech pathologists to reconceptualize our role in creating a more equitable society and we were so thrilled to be um present and be able to present actually at the 2022 um spa conference that you mentioned earlier, Laura, um, in a whole session that was dedicated to the social determinants of health. So definitely a change. And from what um, my understanding, I don't think that um, session has existed before. So it's great. What are some of the barriers to speech pathologists being able to ask about unmet basic needs? There's evidence reported in studies that barriers to asking about unmet needs um, include include things like health professionals feeling like this is really not their business, um, that they lack training in this area, that they feel overwhelmed by asking such sensitive questions to families and that this work really is out of scope for them. And we know that staff um, in health, speech pathologists and health professionals really have limited time and resources to do this work. So that sort of evidence is quite well documented. Um, we also know that there's um, some risks to identifying unmet needs, such as screening families without having strong referral partners in place to address the needs. Um, and that can create big problems for families who may start feeling like there is hope in um, sharing such sensitive information about having food insecurity, for example, but then really nothing being done about it at all. And then they're feeling, um, you know, shame about having um, shared that information and really um, not knowing what is being done with that. Um, so there's the research calling that the double loss too, isn't it? Yeah, so. that's right. The loss of having to share that and then the loss of further loss of not being able to then have that addressed. Mm. That's exactly right. 
Um, and I think there's lots of things that we also don't really know um, about this work is there's relatively limited research in this area. Um, the tools that are available must certainly be adapted to the local context. Um, we know that there's still lots of wiggle room about knowing when is the best time to ask these questions. Really, is it at the point of referral? Is it at intake? Is it at the first time you meet a family at assessment? Should we be re-asking these questions at certain points of time down the track? So we certainly still have lots of work to do, but we are also certainly trying. And um, Lauren and I chat about this a lot. You know, we're not always going to get it right. And these can be really hard um, times when they're such sensitive issues for families. So I think for clinicians, we really want to make this work as acceptable, feasible, and importantly, sustainable as possible. Um, and in saying that, we've really thought about ways to mitigate these risks and barriers through making, um, identifying unmet needs. So asking these questions universally to families, it's not a targeted approach at this point that families, all families are asked these questions, that we explain why we are asking these questions. And that really is only to link them in with the support services that they need to address their unmet needs. Um, we have developed a script when asking these questions so that it's really straightforward for um, whoever is doing that work. And we certainly only ask about the things that we are able to act upon and have a strong referral partner in doing so. Um, so in saying all of that, there is an argument for asking about um, some things without necessarily having that referral partner if we're able to adjust our service delivery, like we spoke about earlier, things like transport, for example. Um, so we've still got a long way to go. There's lots of work to do. There are barriers, but there's lots of um, good work happening um, in place to really mitigate um, those risks and barriers. Um, I think just one thing I would like to mention, and we might get to it further down the track, but just really having something systematic and routine in place is key. We don't want everybody just now screening every family that comes into their service for these unmet needs without really having something um, that is tried and tested in place to really help support um, those families as we don't want them sharing such sensitive personal information without a clear plan. And I imagine some training in doing that as well. Um, having the tool, but then training on how to use the tool would be um, essential as well. Definitely. Yeah, and also a way to document that too. So is it something that is in a family's electronic medical record that pops up as a tile and that can then be seen by and shared with other staff? Or is that actually something that families are consenting to you knowing that info, but not wanting that shared? So there's so many, um, you know, factors that um, need further investigation, as Anna was saying. Um, but yeah, I think data storage and data sharing is also another kind of thing we need to think about. Mm, absolutely. Anna, is there anything you wanted to 
to add to that? No, I don't think so. I mean, just very quickly to say the bit about how it's everybody's business, even if just that awareness is something um, as speech pathologists, we can start to think about, but anyone working with children and families to just really think about the circumstances in which you, the families that you're working with are living in and really understanding um, what's going on for them. Because I think everybody thinks that it's not their role or it's out of scope and it's um, up to somebody else to really address these things. But I think we can see that it's up to everybody to be thinking about these things. Mm. And we understand that though too, don't we? Like we know that there's such a high demand for allied health staff and there's long waiting lists and our you know, core skills are around providing speech language communication um, assessment and intervention but it's also um, yeah how fair is it that we can only provide those services to those who can access it so um, yeah I guess that's the other the other side of it too knowing the barriers to it um, but knowing that we have to find a way to make it work. Absolutely and it also speaks to um, the importance if possible of having a multidisciplinary team doesn't it and or even even if there's um, sort of not a, a team that meets regularly together, even just being aware of the other professionals or services that are involved with a client um, and then liaising with them. You know, maybe there's a psychologist, a social worker, an alcohol and drug worker or a housing, um, housing worker, you know, that's involved. And um, as I said, I think it's easy just to focus on our speech pathology role and... Um, and doing that sort of individual work or the work with the teachers and, and not really think um, more broadly in terms of the client's context. And um, yeah, so I think that's really wonderful that you've been able to identify um, <clears throat> and speak about the importance of considering those other factors and that you're bringing it to the speech pathology um, area. So what, um, we've talked a little bit about this, but I'll just see if there's something you might want to add. Um, what difference can identifying and addressing unmet social needs make in the lives of families? And how do these affect clinical outcomes? Mm, sure. So, yeah, you mentioned we have spoken briefly about it, but if we think about the research and adopting an overarching framework for addressing unmet basic needs. Um, research shows us that this really holds promise for promoting health at an individual and population level, um, working towards health equity and addressing many of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals either, even. So I guess it's things for the individual, at, um, it's things for a state level and national level and globally. Um, so Garg, who is the author of the We Care tool and colleagues developed an OASIS framework and released that in 2020. So it actually maps out the basic idea if you identify unmet social needs and then you address these needs, um, this can lead to improved outcomes and improved outcomes, as we said, for individuals, but also for health systems and um, the economy and other things as well. Um, Garg's work shown us that when we we a screening and referral pathway for unmet basic needs really works so a randomized robust randomized control trial in the US shows that after just four months of asking questions about unmet basic needs that families are 44 times more likely to receive support 
And after 12 months, mothers are more likely to be employed, children are more likely to be in childcare and families are less likely to be homeless. So this is huge. Um, but this screening is not happening routinely in Australia and it's not being done by speech pathologists. So that's why we embarked on this project. We wanted to turn this really big problem, a problem that can be seen as not our problem, but um, we feel that it is, and turn into a huge opportunity um, because it's really important and it's impossible to address communication needs when there are unmet basic needs. Mm, and um, it makes me think of some of the articles and um, that Pamela Snow has written in terms of the public health advocacy role that speech pathologists um, have and that, you know, we're largely absent from, you know, the, the services and the organisations that form these policies and, and, are, and are trying to effect change at this um, sort of broader broader level so it's really yeah. exciting to hear that we've got some speech pathologists sort of working um working to change that yeah and I think taking a place at the prevention table as mm -hmm. Pamela Snow says and yep, absolutely yeah, it's yeah very exciting about what we can do um upstream um rather than always working downstream mm. with the yeah yep top of the cliff rather than the bottom, the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Exactly right. uh, Anna, was there anything you wanted to add to what Lauren said? I think just in your original question about um, how addressing unmet needs can affect clinical outcomes, I feel like there's, um, is even though there's some studies happening in this space, mostly in America, um, there's very little of this research happening here in Australia. And as Lauren outlined, there's very, very good evidence for um, linking families with unmet needs to um, pathways to address those needs and then having um, and seeing that they will then be linked in with housing support or food support. Um, there's strong evidence for that. We have big gaps in um, the effects on clinical outcomes, for example. There's um, gaps in those areas. So this is where we're really interested in um, finding out more research in that area. I think we know that the stress of having unmet needs affects a family's ability to attend appointments. So from a health perspective, that has huge implications for costs of time, um, of non-attendance rates, um, so we know that there's a big opportunity there to really um, see huge economic shifts and changes there when supporting families. Um, and I think there's not necessarily also data to link this, but if families have less stresses and things to worry about, they certainly will have more bandwidth. Um, as Lauren was saying before, that cognitive load to really deal with things like attending appointments for their children. So we don't necessarily have like very um, specific clinical um, data around clinical outcomes, but we know that there's a lot of um, things that can happen alongside to really improve that for children and families. Mm, absolutely, thank you. Uh, okay, so you've mentioned um, a few frameworks and different screening tools, some really um, great acronyms for, for various things. Um, sort of pulling it together, how can speech pathologists sensitively ask clients and their families about what might be going on for, um, for them from a social, social determinants of health perspective? Hmm. Yeah, so I guess the key is 
sensitively um, ask clients and their families because that um, is of really high importance. Um, it has to be really systematic and it has to be really well thought out. Um, it also has to be universal in that it's not assuming when families come in, if they are looking a certain way or of a certain background that you ask questions and of other families you don't because, um, yeah, I mean, with one in six children in Australia living below the poverty line, um, it is something that crosses, um, you know, all um, backgrounds and um so I think having a script and having a referral pathway is really key and having everyone on board in the department and within management as well. Um, and these are certainly areas that we wish to explore further, as Anna said. But um, in March of this year, we completed a 12-month pilot and we were wanting to identify families with unmet basic needs and then link them in with local community partners to address these needs. Um, the study showed that 11% of families identified at least one unmet basic need and that of these 11%, 89% of families with un the unmet basic need then wanted referral to the community partner for support. Um, so this pilot was a quality improvement initiative and just, you know, the start of our work. Um, we didn't have ethics to follow up families to see how they went over time or to see if their unmet needs were addressed and obviously no um, scope to look at the impact on clinical outcomes. But these are measures we're hoping to look at in the future and as we take this project to the next step. Um, we did receive lots of anecdotal information and feedback from families, though, that they were really happy with uh, these questions being asked. And these were from families who had unmet basic needs and families who didn't have unmet basic needs. Um, there was 99% of families, so of the 300 that we asked, 99% um, um, were very happy to answer the questions. And the um, few families that didn't want to answer the questions because things were happening in the background. There was a child screaming and they had to get off the call or they had other pressing issues they need to get to. So that was really um, interesting, yeah, to, to hear and to see that families are wanting to um, be asked these questions and express their appreciation at um, us being interested in them um, and at a more holistic level. Lauren and Anna, what are your plans moving forward with respect to continuing this work? So we're currently looking at further opportunities to roll this work out in different locations with different client groups to look at larger numbers. And we'd really like to be able to look into the um, reliability and validity of a tool that we would be able to use. Um, we'd like to measure clinician and family acceptability and feasibility for carrying out this work. And most importantly, we'd like to look at outcomes for families once they've been linked in with community partners to help address their unmet needs. Um, We'd also like to look at the impact that this has on health systems and services. For example, as we discussed earlier, looking at rates of did not attend appointments to see if this work improves attendance rates for families. Um, it's taken us a really long time to get to this point and we feel really thrilled to have the opportunity to share what we are doing to increase awareness and understanding about equity and social needs intervention and we really hope that everybody listening starts to think about these things too and also as we mentioned before um, 
we'd really like to stress that it's important to have these clear and solid processes and systems in place before screening families for their unmet basic needs. What else can speech pathologists do to help address health inequalities? Yeah, so we've been trying to think about ways to organise our activities in relation to doing this work. And the National Academies of Science, Engineering and Medicine, or NASM, is a US organisation. And in 2019, they actually released a report called Integrating Social Care into the Delivery of Healthcare. So this report sets out a really lovely framework called the Five A's Framework. And speech pathologists can use this framework to think about the activities they can embed into everyday clinical practice to help support families um, who are experiencing disadvantage. Um, the first is awareness. And so awareness is identifying patients and populations um, who have social risks or unmet basic needs and doing it in a way that, as we've mentioned before, is really sensitive. Um, you can then think once you know um, how to identify families and that knowing that the social terms of health impact on children's ability to reach their communication potential, you can think about your service delivery. So can you adjust care? So that's the second A, adjustment. Can you adjust care um, to respond to the needs of families that you're working with? Um, I know we've mentioned a few times, but um, delivering services in a more flexible manner um, at a location that suits or a time that suits, um, delivering in partnership with other um, professionals that might be involved with the family so that the family don't have um, three and four appointments at, at the hospital or at a community centre when they could actually just go and see everyone at the one time. Um, then thinking about assistance. So that's the third A um, after awareness, adjustment, also assistance. So these A's are not linear either. So you can um, think about activities under um, each of these. Um, assistance is connecting families um, with social care resources in the community. So speech pathologists can be really aware of what is in their local community. Are there food banks? Are there um, intensive family support services? Are there places that can help families who are experiencing difficulty with housing? Um, knowing what's available in the local community, and this is something that has to be tailored to each individual community in which speech pathologists are working, um, they then can help families who are experiencing disadvantage. Uh, the final two A's are alignment and advocacy, and these are more community level or service level kind of um, activities whereby services um, have a formal partnership or alignment with a community organisation so that if needs are identified, then they can, um, families can be referred to a specific, through a specific pathway to um, get those needs met. And advocacy, I guess, um, thinking about advancing policies that create um, and assign assets and resources to address social needs and minimising social risk factors um, at a broader level. So thank you for all of that. It's really inspiring. Any final take-home messages or things we haven't discussed that you think it's important for our listeners to know? I'd just like to echo again what Lauren has just said in um, challenging speech pathologists to really think about how they could make their services more flexible and accessible to promote equity for families who really need their support the most. And perhaps just one thing, um, 
is to really get to know and understand what services are available in your local community to support families, community organisations, other absolute heartbeat of neighbourhoods. And as clinicians, none of us have time um, to really invest in um, spending that extra time with families to think about these things, but those organisations can really be key to this process really succeeding. It's been really wonderful talking to you both today. Thank you for taking the time to, to share your knowledge and perspective and, and work with us. There's just two very special people and huge thank you that we just want to give before we end, if that's all right. So Professors Alison Purcell and Sue Wolfenden, they've been really instrumental in supporting us um, in getting this work started and progressing this work. And they're just great um, humans and great health professionals. And so, yeah, we really appreciate all that they've done for us. If you missed any of that, you can refer to the show notes for further information. Lauren and Anna, thank you so much for coming today and for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and, and clinical experience with us. Thanks so much, Laura. It's really nice to have been able to join you today. Thanks, Laura, for having us. Um, we hope all the listeners want to join the Social Determinants of Health movement with us. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up Conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.